Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest is Stephen Yeboa. Stephen is a co-founder of Five Commodity Monitor, a business that spends trading, logistics, and research in commodities. Stephen has uh, more than a decade's experience in research and policy analysis in extractives in Africa. He has also delved into agriculture, energy, and climate change. Stephen has twice in a row been selected as LinkedIn's top voice on economy and finance. This was in 2017 and 2018. Stephen, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's very nice of you to take time to talk to me. Thank you very much, Sheila, for having me. I'm really excited to have been invited to talk on this issue of artisan and small-scale mining in Africa. Artisanal mining has many facets. And in this series, what I'm trying to do is uh, focus on uh, different aspects of it. And the one that I thought I'd uh, start talking to you about is the illicit aspect of uh, artisanal mining. I mean, is it correct uh, to assume that a high percentage of illicit minerals trade stems from artisanal mining? It, it is entirely not the case that a high percentage of illicit mineral trade stems from artisanal and small-scale mining operations and not the large-scale mining operations. Rather, what we have is that artisanal and small-scale mining operation has come under the spotlight because of its informality and illicit means of operations, which are environmentally and economically destructive. Here, we have a situation where states are losing significant sources of revenues because they are unable to track the activities of artisanal and small-scale miners. These miners are also using very crude means of production that wreaks extreme havoc on water, forest, and land resources. But large-scale mining activities have also been recording significant levels of illicit trading activities. That normally happens in the form of illicit financial flows. Every year, for example, an estimated $88.6 billion, which is equivalent to 3.7% of Africa's GDP, leaves the continent as illicit capital flight. So for me, both sectors need genuine rethinking and reshaping. But at the heart of this reshaping is the need to strengthen the economic systems of the continent. And these economic systems have, have to formalize artisanal and small-scale mining activities. So you've said uh, a mouthful, Stephen. Let me try and, and unpack some of what you've said. So you, people think of illicit trade, and they're, they're thinking when they think of artisanal mining, I think they perceive the mineral itself, the physical. But you're, what you're saying is illicit trade manifests itself in different ways. In the large-scale mining, it's in the form of capital flight. That in itself represents some form of illicit trade in the sector. And I think that's a valid point. Uh, the second thing is uh, cross-border and the control. How much do you think the lack of capacity for law enforcement and the lack of capacity to monitor movement of goods between countries is the problem? as opposed to us seeing it see, simply as artisanal small-scale mining? That, that's a very good question. It, basically, illicit trading activities happen because of capacity issues and also because of complicity issues. Of capacity 
you know, is because there are tax officials and there are other state officials who are unable to understand the complexities of, of the invoices and, and let's say the books of these large scale mining companies. And also in complicity terms, because these officials are aware of activities that happen, for example, in the artisanal and small scale mining sector, but they are reluctant to deal with the issue because they benefit directly from it. So in the case of Ghana, for example, we have seen a situation where officials are allowing illegal operations in the small scale mining sector because they benefit and they get something into their pocket. So if you're able to just oppose the whole capacity and complicity issues or challenges, that's where we can better you know, put forward a stringent and a strong solution to combat illicit mineral trade in the continent. When I think of uh, uh, the artisanal uh, small scale, I'm often struck by how simplistic uh, we are in our understanding of it. Uh, because the issues you raise of capacity, uh, illicit trade, and uh, complicity, these are not unique uh, to artisanal small-scale mining. The common denominator is fundamentally that there is poor governance, there's poor control. And as long as you have that, then uh, illicit trade of minerals and other substances becomes possible. But you also mentioned equipment. Can you explain to the listeners? You've indicated that you think one way is to provide the right equipment for the miners. How does that come into the, the big picture of uh, artisanal small scale? All right, so I will, I will deal with what you have termed the common the common denominator in terms of having to compare illicit mineral trade to pharmaceutical drugs, human trafficking, and and also money laundering. I think informality is the key denominator of illicit trade activities in key productive economic sectors in a continent. That's from whether pharmaceuticals to human trafficking to money laundering. And informality in any economy thrives on weak social political and economic system. So no economy can develop under incessant or uncontrolled informality. So it's nearly impossible to track and monitor activities of this of informal economic activity like what happens in artisanal and small-scale mining sector. Let's take the case of Ghana, for example. Though Ghana has very strict laws that control illicit activities in, in the mineral sector, for example, in the ASM sector, Ghana is still losing incredible levels of money because of illicit trade activities. A recent investigation showed that Ghana could be losing about $5 billion annually from ASM, the artisan and small-scale mining sector alone. So where a system is solidly organized, these illicit activities can easily be traced and stained. So it's about having to deal with the growing levels of informality in the productive economic sectors. And you had mentioned about the issue of poor governance and, and the need for equipment, let's say improved technology. When you have an improved technology, it helps you to easily demarcate a jurisdiction where you place this technology and you can try the operation. So this is where I believe that technology is actually the missing link between the poor governance that we are experiencing in the, in the artisanal small scale mining center and also the, the 
the incessant increase or let's see the meteoric rise of of um of of, of illicit trading activities so uh, i i think uh, you are right that certainly formalizing the sector such that you have clear regulations for licensing environmental interface and then processing would help because once you have formal units then they are identifiable you can target them you can engage them but where you don't have that formality then it is difficult to identify people to engage and to overcome some of these challenges that said i think we we are challenged uh, stephen with a certain reality here is the reality one uh the reality is that the informal sector on the continent is huge and people are driven towards the informal sector in a way because the licensing technological and other commercial barriers are very low and 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 so if we start to formalize them the the reverse of that is that the entry barriers in terms of people making a living rise how do you think we overcome this absolutely Sheila if if there is any force that is pushing people into artisanal and small scale mining it's basically a livelihood issue so in Ghana for example people are going to artisanal and small scale mining in Obuasi because in Obuasi they are known to go for over a decade or a century so in, in such a scenario what you do is that the state has to relax its bureaucratic walls the bureaucracy is what keeps people away from having to follow the formalization process and i've heard of formalization process since i was i was in my in my college right and none of these formalization strategies have worked for example in ghana and i can that can be talked of of other african countries that are producing gold so i think that we should be able to relax the system so that miners are able to acquire the needed permits, the needed uh, training without having to go through bureaucratic you know, uh, process. For example, if a miner is in, in, in the northern part of Ghana, that miner shouldn't travel to the capital, Accra, to acquire a license to operate. No miner will spend that time and money to move down and then go through paperwork. So it's rather, let's say, the regulator and then the state that should move close to the miners, get them organized, create a process for them, easy process, and within weeks, they can have all the paperwork and all the, all the parameters to operate. I think this is the best way where we can then merge the need for improved livelihoods in the rural economies and then the need to stem illicit mineral trade and also to make ASM rather uh, pivotal to, to Africa's you know, uh, growth and development. I like your suggestion that if the state institutions say you must come to me and not actually take proactive steps to reach out, then uh, there is no incentive. On the contrary, it's off-putting materially and otherwise. And, and, and I think it's, it's certainly a philosophy uh, worth pursuing. I mean, the, the, the one thing you said that uh, really intrigues me is this uh, value, the estimated loss of uh, US $5 billion. Uh, I mean, that is staggering by any uh, stretch of imagination. But what you're saying is that by not formalizing the sector, actually, the state is, is, is worse off 
because of this, uh, if you wish, loss of revenue through illicit trade. So really, it, 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 the state has a vested interest in ensuring that the sector is formalized and that there is no revenue leakage in the same way that we see in other areas. Why is there no incentive on the part of the state despite these large sums of money? It, it, it's, it's a compelling question, Sheila. And for me, I think it's basically that the, the, there, is, there is gross ineptitude among government, right? And aside from ineptitude, there is this, you know, total you know, ignorance that has been displayed when it comes to what the artisanal Muslim mining sector can offer the continent. You know, in Ghana, for example, we have about 1 million plus people that are into artisanal small-scale mining sector. And by that, by, by that number, estimatedly, we are having about 6 million, 5 to 6 million people indirectly benefiting from artisanal small-scale mining sector. So if you're able to really take that sector, nurture, develop, and make sure it's formalized in, you know, and integrated into the formal economic systems. That is enough to, to solve the poverty levels you know, among rural economies in the country. And it can be a strong, a strong you know, source of revenue for the state. Because even if you are losing $2.5 billion annually from artisan and small-scale mining sector, that is enough you know, to finance most infrastructure project uh, in, in the country. And it's about the state you know, or the government, you know, uh, uh, starters that are not recognizing the benefits, you know, that's, that are inherent in the ASM sector. And this actually has, it has to be a total, a total change of mindset about what the ASM sector can, can you know, can provide. You know, it's seen, it's seen currently as this crude, you know, inefficient way of gold production. But it's really not the case. It's rather the case that we are denying them of the needed technology. We are denying them of the needed, you know, uh, formalization, you know, uh, and, and permits and paperwork that they need to also operate at the same level or at the same, you know, process as Anglogo, Ashanti, or the big and uh, large scale mining companies. So, so what you're saying is uh, essentially by legally, institutionally, and otherwise not creating a space uh, in which artisanal miners can operate formally, transparently, and, and essentially follow due process, we are sort of driving the practice underground or marginalizing it. And with that comes this huge loss in revenue. Uh, through environmental damage and others. It, would that be correct? Absolutely, absolutely, that's correct. So it, it's, it's rather a double geopardy. ASM is happening and it's happening across the African countries. In West Africa, it's intense. Almost 60 to 70% of gold produced in Burkina Faso comes from the artisan and small-scale mining sector. So if you, if you want to kill the goose that lay, that's laying the golden egg, then basically that you are jeopardizing your own economy. And at the same time, you will be bearing the brand of their destructive you know, ways of operation. So if you're able to you know, streamline their operation, the first benefit is that the state will then break in very critical revenue that's needed 
there's no need to go for aid from outside. If you have ASM and you're able to streamline their operations, and there's no need, you know, to suffer mercury contamination or forest destruction or water contamination when you're able to deploy the right technology and you're able to make sure that these are streamlined and uh, for for these miners to operate. So, so we have two things with a current day economic uh, opportunity cost, and then uh, we have uh, future cost through the environmental damage and the cost potentially of trying to correct that, let alone the cost of forfeiting the potential use of the land. Has anybody ever tried to say, you know, if we look forward at the cost of reclaiming the land because we have been negligent, they have not contained the problem at source. Has anybody ever tried to, to quantify what that looks like for a country or a region, uh, Stephen? Yes, yes, absolutely. In Ghana, they, there have been some studies that have quantified what the amount that will be needed to reverse the, the damage that you know, artisanal and, or let's say, illicit, I'll use informal rather because they are more informal than, let's say, illegal. The, the informal ASM sector have actually, you know, I would say, wreaked so much havoc that Ghana will need billions of dollars annually to reclaim land and to make sure that we return the quality uh, levels of water back, back to its state. So yeah, in Ghana, for example, there have been billions that have been mentioned that this will be needed to reclaim lands and then to reverse all the damage that artisan and small-scale mining sector has, been, has done. And for me, it's, it's rather that we are looking at the, the, the stem of, of, the, of the tree and not looking at the, the root of the tree. So the problem is that we should be able to make sure that we solve it right from source. And from source is to change the way these guys are producing. You know, as, as the, the saying goes, you cannot do the same thing and expect a different result. To really expect a different result for an improved ASM sector is that we have to change the way they do it. And the way they do it is that they are using crude method, they are using mercury in, this, in their recovery, and this is contaminating rivers, contaminating water bodies and forest resources. So uh, my understanding, certainly in some uh, regions in Ghana, uh, is that the land tenure system vests that resource with uh, traditional leaders. And, and that there is a relationship that is formed between traditional leaders and artisanal miners that is beneficial. And that, uh, for better or for worse, the state has not succeeded in balancing its ownership of minerals, the control of the land, and the way that artisanal mining is governed. Am I correct? And, and, and if not, could you perhaps tell us in your view how you think the land tenure issue interfaces with some of the problems you've alluded to? This is, this is a fantastic point because over the years, you know, in my research in the mining sector, I've realized that I've come, I've come to the solid conclusion and actually a vivid one at that, that property rights system the, the, the property rights setup is, is a contributing factor to all the illicit activities we are seeing in the artisan small-scale mining sector in Ghana, right? According to Ghana's laws, the minerals are vested, the minerals are vested in the president on behalf of the people, right? And there's also 
at the at the local level where the land is is vested either in a family or a clan or a stool. So we have this, you know, dichotomy where land is owned by a family or a clan or let's say a community, and the gold is owned by the people, but it held in trust by the president. So there is this confusion. You you come to Accra, someone gets a mining concession, right? For artisan small scale mining sector. He goes and the land, the surface land has been given to another person. So if there should be a solution, then we have to find a solution to, to this confusion when it comes to property rights system and setup. And this setup has to do that the traditional authorities have to be brought on board in the whole you know, fight against illegal or small-scale mining sector. So what you have to do is that we have to rope in the chief or the traditional authorities to make sure that they're able to align land title when it comes to, let's say, the surface land and also all title when it comes to the gold beneath. So if you're able to then adjust or align these two uh, to different purposes, that's where there can be a solution. Because here in Ghana, there have been cases, increasing increasing level of cases where chiefs have given lands to illegal miners, including the Chinese, right? And they don't have the right to do that, but they are doing that because the land belongs to them. But if the Chinese goes in and start mining for gold, it's basically illegal because the gold is held you know, in trust for the people by the president. So this is the confusion mm. about the, the yeah. whole property rights system. So, to be fair, uh, I've seen many jurisdictions in which uh, there is a separation of surface rights, which are essentially land rights, which is limited to right of use rather than ownership. But even if the, the, the surface rights extend to ownership in perpetuity, it's not unusual for surface rights to be separated from mineral rights. What seems to be missing, and, and I speak under correction, is that the state, when they are minerals, becomes the authority over all matters, but does so with due regard for the rights of those who have uh, uh, land rights, if you see what I mean. But if the two, which is to say land rights and mineral rights, are deemed to rank equal, then you have a problem. At some point, one of those must be ranked superior, such that when there are minerals, the state then kicks in. And, 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 and that might be one of the problems, but the other might just be people not exercising will, not implementing a law that exists for whatever reason. And, and I've always wondered whether in a country like Ghana, where the stools or the traditional leaders are so powerful, but also so culturally important and need to be preserved, whether perhaps there's a level of timidity which uh, leads to issues of governance falling between the cracks. Uh, what do you think of that, uh, Stephen? Yeah, it's, it's a good point, Sheila. I think it's entirely the inability of actors you know, to exercise the right world. I think the laws are clear. The land belongs to, let's say, a stool or a traditional authority or a community. When there is gold in the land, it, the ownership refers to the state. So the confusion has been at which point does, does the ownership revert to the state? And at which point does it revert to the traditional authority or the stool? So where we need to find is that there is this small gap 
between when the ownership tends to which and to whom. That is where we have to find the, uh, the solution. But in a way, I think the loss are clear is actually a deliberate means, a deliberate will of people just to benefit, right? And you are right, the traditional authorities are so powerful that when it comes to finding a lasting solution to elicit you know, ASM operations, they, they can be, be at the forefront of, the, of, of this fight and this solution. And for me, it's, it's basically that there has to be, you know, this stakeholder collaboration. If we are not able to collaborate, you know, let's say the Ministry of Lands and Natural Resources in Accra, and let's say um, the Dalfante Hene or if there's not no direct, you know, collaboration, this will continue. It will continue to fester, and the solution, though is so direct and easy, will be difficult to find. Sure. So. I mean, you and I have talked now about what I deem the supply end of the illicit or informal uh, artisanal mining trade. There is, of course, supply is only uh, sustained by demand. And I, I wanted you to just take a moment and, and say, are we perhaps uh, ill-advisedly focusing on the supply. Why is that not a good idea? I think that it's a good, it's a good identification of one of the key issues. So illicit mean trading of, of minerals is both a supply, is both a supply and demand phenomena, right? But demand is a strong force here. ASM activities across Africa saw a meteoric rise when gold prices started going up. In Ghana, for example, the, the gold output from artisan small-scale miners actually have tripled since the, 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 the increase in gold prices you know, at the global market. And what drives, you know, what drives higher gold price is the demand. It's basically the demand for jewelry, the increasing demand for gold-backed financial portfolio in countries, among others. So the insatiable market out there needing gold for the activities sparked a significant increase in illicit ESM operations, as well as related trading. To fix this, we have to develop a multi-prong approach that fundamentally will deal with the incessant demand for minerals, especially gold. And due diligence procedures have been weak in terms of having to send illicit ESM operations because they have been linked to, I think, the supply side. But we have to embed the, also the demand side and for me, you, you know, in, in your description, you are right that there is an overly focus on the supply end of the challenges of illicit trading of minerals. What we have to point out is that the mineral sector has experienced some number of initiatives that are meant to bring sanity. We have, for example, the OECD due diligence guidance for responsible supply chains of minerals from conflict affected and high risk areas, among others. So what are these initiatives doing? You know, at my size, we have to make sure that there are appropriate ways of working, right? Whether it's a site, you know, the site or OECD due diligence, you have to make sure that it happens at the site, at the supply, at the beginning of the supply of, of gold and other minerals. This is why I am of a strong conviction that an improved technology will provide that first step with a solution to dangerous activities that rather engender illicit minerals trading. 
So uh, it's true. I'm, I'm, I'm very well aware of all the initiatives, uh, whether it is, uh, uh, you know, responsible gold jewelry, whether it's responsible sourcing, there are a plethora of such initiatives worldwide. But you know, I think that uh, these initiatives are limited in one very material respect, and, I, and, I, and I'd like to hear your view. And it is this that these are mere advocacy groups or, you know, standards for compliance. What they don't do, Stephen is that they don't share in the potential financial burden that Ghana, Burkina, Ethiopia, DRC, Tanzania, Guinea, and the list goes on, bears in the future liability of reclaiming the environment. And yet, as consumers today, as investors today in gold, they are enjoying the benefits. So I wonder how you think, based on your acknowledgement that there is only supply if there is demand, we can rope in modern day beneficiaries to become part of latter day problem solvers, contributing financially to restoring this environment. Because otherwise, we're going to have a climate change story again, where 20 years later, X is paying for the ills of Y. What do you think of that, uh, Stephen? I, I totally agree with you, Sheila. And one thing is, you know, in my, in my field work, we met a couple of Moscow miners in Ghana. And... They, they were quite frank and straightforward with what they need. They, they actually told us that, Stephen, we are tired of training, right? We have had various interventions when it comes to having to, you know, raid the ASM sector of Mercury, right? But what we have realized that there are more financial resources going into training, you know, and let's say knowledge development and awareness of the impact of mercury on, on miners. The miners are well aware of what mercury can do to them, can do to communities and the country, and of course the environment. But they will ask the question, what alternative do we have? If you are, you are, you are, if you are advocating that we stop using mercury in gold recovery, what else do we use? So this is where we, we, we saw that there's there is this level of practicality which is missing from the whole intervention that, as you indicated, we need latter day, you know, latter day, you know, let's say saints and people who will then come to the to the vivid, you know, realization that having to make sure that there is environmentally, you know, friendly way of gold production, it has to it has to go along with the use of right technology and tools and equipment. If this does not happen. All the due diligence and other initiatives for me will 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 be will come to a knot. It will definitely be a non-starter. So we have to really align the whole intervention such that whoever is looking for you know a mercury-free jewelry in Dubai or in Switzerland or in the in the Netherlands or the United States have to be concerned with what happens at the supply side. And at the supply side, it's not just having to group miners in Accra in a hotel room teaching them the impact of mercury. No, they know. 
but that is not what they need. Their major need is that they have to be an alternative. And this alternative is what my outfit, for example, Commodity Monitor has deployed, that there has to be a, a, a technology that can help them and that can be in place of the use of mercury. Hmm. So here's my last question to you. The Gold Coast is back. For the first time in a very long time, Ghana has surpassed South Africa as Africa's largest gold producer as of last year. And we expect this trend to continue because uh, the assets in South Africa are old and we don't expect any significant discoveries. And so I wonder, this privilege of being the region's largest producer, does it in any way imply some burden of responsibility on Ghana to lead uh, in helping the region solve some of these problems, uh, Stephen? Yes, absolutely. It's, for me, I think it, it, it's more of like a statistical feeling. I'll say a good statistical feeling for Ghana to lead in gold production right across the continent. And, and of course, overcoming South Africa, which has been the, the leading gold producer for so many years. But it comes with strong, and for me, it comes with, with a, very, you know, a very big responsibility for Ghana, for example. And Sheila, for Ghana to keep this going, it has to be, the focus has to be on artisanal and small-scale mining. Right, because if you look at the trend of gold production, artisanal small scale mining have more than tripled their production over the years. So Ghana overtaking South Africa, for example, was also was due to uh, a, a strong production levels from artisanal small scale mining. So there is a need, and this has happened even in the midst of the crude and old technology that they are using. So where there is a, where it's an introduction of an efficient technology, then it means that their production is bound to increase the further. And if it's increased, definitely we look going ahead and in the years ahead, Ghana will continue to increase its gold production. And small scale mining, you know, uh, with the vision that we have, is able to, let, let's say, have 20% of small scale miners using our technology. We envisage that gold production will double again in the next two, three years. And this will place Ghana at a very, I would say, a, a very good position in terms of having to produce gold. But Sheila, it doesn't end there that it has to be only gold producing. A commodity monitor, we want to create this ecosystem where gold producers will liaise with local jewelry production and then they can produce green jewelry. Green jewelry because the gold is coming from a green source, there's no mercury or chemical contamination, and the value addition should happen within Ghana. And then we can then actually have more, you know, and leverage more value from the gold that we produce and not just gold producers, but gold, you know, I would say value addition is that here. And then this is where Ghana can better benefit from its gold resources. And, in, and also this applies to other African countries. Yes. So I fear, uh, Stephen, that you and I have merely poked the hornet's nest, but the hornet is still out there. So how about we leave it here for now and hopefully uh, catch up again in the foreseeable future and see whether or not we can advance uh, some of these solutions. Thank you very much once again for 
speaking to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much, Sheila, for, for this opportunity.